welcome to the Truth Ward Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have benefited from this podcast or any of Olin's books, we'd like to ask you to leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you purchase your books. Now, here's Olin. Okay, guys, if you've got your Bible, let's open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to give a super brief review, overview of where we've been so far. God in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, made a covenant with Adam, uh, sometimes called the covenant of works, the covenant of life, the covenant of creation, but Adam was supposed to obey, and it was dependent on him doing that, and he broke it probably on day one. He fell, and there was consequences for that breaking of that covenant, but also God introduced the covenant of grace a promise to save and to forgive just based on God's mercy. The covenant of grace was reemphasized, specifically in the, Mos- uh, excuse me, the Abrahamic covenant. And then in the Mosaic covenant, God did a little bit of a strange thing that can at times be confusing. He really brought back to bear the covenant of grace and the covenant of works side by side. Now, when we talk about the Mosaic covenant, it really, the, the law was given in the Mosaic covenant, but there's really three different types of law that's given in the Mosaic Covenant. This is very important and helpful to understand. There's the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments that we're all pretty familiar with, but then there's also the ceremonial law, which was about how people were supposed to worship God, and then there was the civil law that was a lot of their legal legislation and laws, but it was about how they were supposed to relate to one another. So let me just show you an example of this. Uh, In Exodus chapter 20, most of us are very familiar, it's where the Ten Commandments were given. So just skip down to verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, that's the last of the Ten Commandments. That's part of the moral law. And remember what we said the whole time is that the moral law was actually on the heart of man, even in a broken fashion, from the very beginning. Even though it hadn't been spoken, it hadn't been written down, Cain was supposed to know you're not allowed to murder Abel, right? Uh, But then look at verse uh, 24. Skip down to verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So this this is part of the ceremonial law. He's telling them how to build altars. He's telling them about how to sacrifice different animals. Skip down to chapter 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he will go out free for nothing. That's an example of the civil law. It was legislating if you wanted to have indentured servants and things like that, how long they could serve. Now, what? here's the problem. When you read Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, Numbers, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, it's not like... All the moral law is here, and then when that's done, all the ceremonial law comes second, and then when that's done, all the civil law comes third, and it's all clearly packaged. It's all kind of jumbled together, and so that, therefore, it can be confusing. But here has been, to me, the most helpful way to think about it. The moral law, we said week one, what is it? It's a righteous revelation of the heart of God. Don't murder people because God loves life. Don't commit adultery because God's a faithful God. He's faithful to you. You should be faithful to him. You should be faithful to your spouse. Then what is the ceremonial law? What is the civil law? Think about it this way. 
Essentially, the first four commandments of the moral law are about our relationship with God, right? How we're supposed to love him, worship him, honor him. Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Well, the ceremonial law was God getting really specific with a certain people in a certain time. Here's how you worship me. Here's how you love me. It's almost like the moral law was the principle and the ceremonial law was all the applications and outworking of those principles. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments is all about how we're supposed to love one another, love human beings. And what's the civil law? If the moral law is about the principles of how to love one another, the civil law was about all the practical implications and outworking in the ancient Israeli agricultural society. I mean, just take Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. That verse couldn't possibly apply to us anymore because none of us would ever think of buying a Hebrew person to be a slave. Doesn't fit, doesn't work. But in their world, it fit perfectly. Okay, now, what we're going to look at is flip to the New Testament. And really what we're going to look at today is how Christ has perfectly fulfilled all of the Mosaic law for his people. All three different sections of the Mosaic Law. So go to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and look in verse 17 at what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. And that was a Jewish way to refer to the entire Old Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. So when Christ came, he came to fulfill the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. So flip over or flip back just to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, look in verse 15. But Jesus answered him when he went to get baptized. Let it be so now, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He was fulfilling the law in our place. Skip down to chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And after the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, there's, a, there's a lot interesting about this text, just two things that I'll mention. Every time when Satan had a temptation, Jesus quoted a verse of Scripture, in a sense, to push the devil back and give himself strength against temptation. All three of the verses that Jesus quoted, anybody know what book they came from? Deuteronomy. They came from the law. He was out there, in a sense, saying, God tested the nation of Israel for 40 years in the desert, and they blew it. They complained. They tested God, right? They whined about the food. He gave them manna and said, don't get any manna on the Sabbath, and they tried to do it anyway. You know, they, they would cry about meat. All those testings they went through, and they blew it. Jesus is now the one true Jewish man 
for 40 days in the desert being tested in every way the nation of Israel was and every single time he's getting it right. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy to stand strong. Here's the other thing. Are you all familiar with 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where John is talking about the sinful world culture that we live in? And he says, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. There's three different main types of sin in life. There's the lust of the flesh. That's our appetites. It can be too much sex, too much sleep, too much food, too much drink. And we see Jesus dealing with that the first time. No, I'm not going to make food when I'm not supposed to be eating. And then there's the lust of the eyes. It's about stuff. It's about money. It's about having possessions. And Jesus says, for all the kingdom, all the riches of the world, I won't bow down and worship you. Okay? And then there's the boastful pride of life. It's about fame. It's about power, prestige. No, I'm not going to test God by jumping off the temple so that I can just get a bunch of followers. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He was tempted in every single way that we are, and yet he never sinned. Not in his thoughts, not in his feelings, not in his desires. He never sinned, okay? And Reverend Barker used to have this great illustration that I loved, okay? And you just... Think practically, don't worry. I'm not even going to ask you to share around the table about this one. But I want you to think about a sin maybe currently that you struggle with. And what, what, how does it typically go in your life? A, a thought comes into your mind, maybe I should do X. And you say, no, I'm not going to do it because that's sinful. And then something happens that increases the temptation a little bit more. The thought goes through your mind, well, I could probably do it and get away with it. Nobody would ever know. And you say, no, nope, I'm going to be holy, I'm not going to do it. And then later, the same temptation comes up, and you've had a really bad day, and you're tired, you're hungry, you're alone, and so you say, forget it, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, you see what happened? Satan kind of turned up the temptation, level one, level two, level three. And at about level three, that's where most of us give in. Jesus Christ never gave in. So it was like Satan was always turning the temptation up to level 10, and he never gave in. He was always strong. He was always pure. He's our example of how to fight sin. That's super important, but even more important, he's our savior because he did it for us. He did it in our place. He did it as the second Adam, okay? And he, guys, this is kind of a side note, but it might be the most important thing for some of you listening to this. That's why he's such a great high priest. When you come to him with whatever you're struggling with, alcohol, lust, gluttony, anger, coveting, greed, and you're like honestly talking to him about these are the feelings, this is what I keep giving into. He gets it. He understands. He's compassionate. He can say, you know what? Been there, done that. I didn't ever go through with it, but I was tempted with it. Christ fulfills the moral law for his people. Now flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and what we're going to see is he also fulfills the ceremonial law for his people. Christ fulfills the ceremonial law for his people. all the Jewish ways that they were supposed to worship God. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was born under the Mosaic law. He was born under the covenant of works, just like we are. And he fulfilled it. So Ephesians chapter 2, and let's start in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, a little context. One of the biggest problems they had in the New Testament church is you had all these Gentiles becoming Christians, and the Jews who thought they were super spiritual and super special were like, wait a second, the Gentiles just kind of get in for free? Don't they need to at least get circumcised or do something? to become more Jewish before they become Christians. And so Paul's addressing this. And guys, this is key. Look look back at verse um, 15. By abolishing the law of commandments. Just think about that for a second. What laws did Jesus abolish? Did he abolish the Ten Commandments? Did Jesus say, you know, in the Old Testament, they weren't allowed to murder. But now, guys, murder away. Somebody gets on your nerves on 280? Pull out your pistol and blow them away. Doesn't matter. Of course not. The moral law still stands. So what commandments is Paul saying were abolished? He's talking about the ceremonial law. Remember how it worked in the temple, right? There was a certain distance that a Gentile could go, a God-fearing Gentile that said, I believe in Yahweh, I want to worship him. He could only go so far in the temple. And there was a whole other inner court that only Jews could go into. And Paul is saying Jesus abolished all that. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. You can come close to the Father. You actually can go into the Holy of Holies now in the presence of God because all of that ceremonial law was finished when the curtain was ripped in two because Christ's flesh was ripped in two because of us. Okay? I'm going to read a couple of quotes, uh, a little bit long, but I think it will be helpful. Okay? So here's Matthew Henry. Jesus took away the binding power of the ceremonial law, so removing that cause of enmity and distance between the Jews and the Gentiles, which is here called the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So Matthew Henry's saying that's what he's talking about, the ceremonial law, because it enjoyed a multitude of external rites and ceremonies and consisted of many institutions, appointments about the outward parts of divine worship. The legal ceremonies were brought to an end by Christ, having their accomplishment in him. All those legal, I mean, excuse me, all of those uh, ceremonial laws, they were pointing towards Christ. I mean, maybe the clearest was sacrificing a lamb. What was that pointing towards? The one true lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. So we don't have to sacrifice lambs anymore. Christ fulfilled all of the ceremonial law for us, okay? And here's John Calvin. It is evident, too, that Paul is here treating exclusively of the ceremonial law. For the moral law is not a wall of partition separating us from the Jews, right? It's not like in the Old Testament God said, well, Jews can't murder, but Gentiles can kill whoever they want to. No, the whole planet wasn't allowed to kill. But the ceremonial law kept people separated. It's gone. Christ fulfilled the moral law for his people. Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law for his people. And then third, Christ fulfills the civil law for his people. Flip over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Let's just start in verse 13, actually. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, 
That this is, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Oftentimes when the Romans were going to uh, publicly execute somebody by crucifixion, y'all probably heard this before, part of what they would do is they would write the crime down on a placard and they would nail it to the top of the cross. I mean, why did the, why did the Romans like crucifixion? Is they were trying to warn other people, don't do what this guy did. This guy was an insurrectionist. He tried to overthrow Rome, and now he's going to hang on the cross by the side of the highway for three days and suffer, and you're going to know what he did, so you'll never do it. Paul is taking that imagery and saying, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, now literally what Pilate decided to write up there was that he was the king of the Jews, because that's why the Pharisees wanted him killed, because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But metaphorically, what was written on the cross, on the placard, was all the sins of all the people that would ever trust in Christ. That's what he was dying for. So think about this. You may have never committed murder, but you've gotten sinfully angry, which Matthew 5 says is baby murder in the heart, right? You may have never actually had an affair, but you've probably looked at a lot of women to lust after them, which Jesus said it's like seed adultery in the heart. So all of those things would have been guilty of death under the Old Testament civil law. Christ took the literal physical death that all of us deserve for our sins. He fulfilled the moral law. He fulfilled the civil law, and he fulfilled the ceremonial law. Guys, have you ever wondered, why did Jesus Christ have to be born as a little baby, then spend 33 years of life, 30 years that we know of just doing normal life, not doing anything special, no miracles, no teaching, no healing, no demon being cast out, three years of ministry, and then he dies and then he rises. I mean, why couldn't he just show up on the scene one day, hey, guys, I'm God in the flesh, maybe do like maybe a lot of teaching, healing, miracles on one day, convince everybody, go to the cross the next day, rise again. Why? Because he had to live a full life of righteousness to be our substitute. How many of you ever heard the little phrase, if you're trying to explain to somebody what does it mean to be, you know, justification by faith alone, and we use this little uh, saying that says, just as if I'd never sinned. You ever heard that? Okay. That's not bad. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's just it's only about 50% good because it leaves half of it out. It's just as if I'd never sinned. It's also just as if I had committed 33 years of perfect righteousness. He got my sin record and died for it, and I get his righteous record, and that's why I live for it. Flip over to Galatians 3. We'll just look at a couple more verses here and we'll be done. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And look at verse 10. We looked at this last week. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. If you want to save yourself, you would have to obey all the moral law, all the civil law, all the ceremonial law on your own. Over 600 commands in the Old Testament. Impossible. We're cursed for it. But then flip over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And this will be the last uh, verse we look at for today. Galatians chapter 4, starting verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, the perfect time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Notice this, guys, born under the law. Jesus Christ was born, what does that mean? Under the covenant of works, under the Mosaic law. Why? To redeem us, to buy us back. 
to redeem those who were under the law. All, all people are born under the covenant of works because we're born in Adam. And he failed the covenant of works, so we're born as failures under the covenant of works, under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So let me just make a couple of points by way of application. Motives matter most. Why do you do what you do? The good works, the religious works, the going to church, the worship, the sharing the gospel with your neighbor, the helping some lady across the street, whatever it may be, what's the real motive in your heart? Does it come from a place of I'm trying to earn and scrap and impress God and get him to owe me something, put him in my debt, make him have to pay me? That's a sinful, worldly, legalistic way to think about it. That's the way that a slave relates to a master. That is not the way a Christian is supposed to relate to Father God. It's wrong. And we, guys, we may have pristine theology in our minds. But I was talking to somebody just recently, a couple that used to be on staff with Campus Outreach. I mean, and I was talking primarily to the wife. She's probably been a Christian 20-plus years. And she said, for so long, I did all this ministry, and I thought I was doing it just because I love Jesus and I love people. And now they're kind of out of ministry. She said, I started to realize, no, that was my identity. It made me feel special that I was doing all this ministry. And I kind of thought then God was going to owe me something. And I think that those kind of subtle sinful motives slip into our hearts so often. And, and the reality is, guys, even if in some sense I could do some good work to pay God back, where did, where did I get the grace? Where did I get the motive? Where did I get the desire to even do that good work? God gave it to me. So every time I do a good work, I'm not getting myself out of debt. I'm going more in debt to God. We don't relate to God like a slave relates to a master. We're supposed to relate to him like a good son relates to the perfect daddy. I'm I'm guessing you're all very uh, familiar with the prodigal son parable. And this is like a little personal addendum, all right? So this is not in the Bible, okay? But, But I think, go here with me for a second. It's not hard for me to imagine the day after the prodigal got home and they had this huge party, right? Celebration, the whole town's invited and daddy's just showering the prodigal with kisses and love and the robe and the fatted calf and the best wine and the signet ring that the next morning, maybe the dad came downstairs for breakfast and he's looking around and he's like, well, where's my son? And he goes upstairs, he's not in his bedroom and one of the servants says, he's out in the field with the slaves and the dad goes out to the son and says son what are you doing out here you're not a slave and dad I know but I just feel so guilty I feel so bad I, I wasted a third of your wealth I just blew it on prostitutes and wine I just feel like I gotta do something to pay you back how do you think that father would feel in that moment I said no you, you didn't get it Didn't you hear yesterday, the party, the reception? I don't want to have you back as a slave. I want to have you back as a son. The debt's cleared. Okay, and for us guys, the blood of Jesus Christ paid the debt in full. There's nothing we can add to it. And it's really blasphemous to try to do that. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't serve God, that we shouldn't work for God? Absolutely not. But motives matter most. So, 
When all my sons turned about 12 years old, I tried to take them on a special kind of trip with dad. And, and basically what I was trying to do, we did a little bit of Bible study and what does it mean to be a man and some of that kind of stuff. But basically what I was trying to do right before they became a teenager is I wanted to convince them, hey, I really like you and love you and we're probably going to fight a lot during the teenage years. But like my main goal is I want you to become a Christian and a close second goal is I just want to make sure we still are friends when we come out of this thing. Right? I, so I said, I'm probably going to spend too much money on this trip and it's just going to be me and you, and it's going to be fun. We can go do something that you want to do. Uh, we can eat whatever you want to eat, right? So if you want to wake up and eat a Snicker bar for breakfast, we can do that. Mom ain't going to be here. If you want to go out for dinner and order a big steak and not even eat it all, that's fine. I'm not going to whine at you about being wasteful. If you want to watch a bunch of rated R violent war movies with cussing, it's like no sex or nudity, but we'll watch all the killing and, you know, you want to watch. It's going to be a man trip. Okay, so when I took my first son on this, and we had three days of just fun. The very last morning, he woke up earlier than I did, which almost never happened, right? 12-year-old little boy. And so I'm kind of laying in bed. I just kind of crack one eye. I'm just trying to see what's going on here. And I can see he's moving around the room, diff- doing different stuff. And so finally, when I set up, he said, now, we're staying in a normal hotel room, right? He said, hey, Dad, I just want you to know... Uh, I, I, I packed both of our bags and I, I took out the trash and I've cleaned the room and yeah, I actually made you a little bowl of like instant breakfast oatmeal over here. You know, and I didn't have the heart to tell him, he's like, buddy, we're in a hotel. You didn't have to, you know, clean the room, take out the trash, right? But he said, and dad, I just did all this because I just want to say thank you for this great trip. You see what's going on there? He wasn't trying to earn anything. He already had it all. The trip was over. We're about to go home. But there was just so much of a wealth of joy and gratitude in his heart. He's like, what can I do to make my daddy happy today? That ought to be the motive for Christian obedience every single day. God's already paid my debt in full. I am secure. He's my dad. I'm his son. And I love him. What can I do to make him happy today? And I'm just going deeper into debt. And that's okay. Because he's my dad. And he don't treat me like a slave. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good. You are so wise. Your word is so rich. I plead with you, God, that these truths that might be old to many of us would become fresh. They would become new. They would not just be academic propositions in our mind, but they would seek down into the basement of our hearts. Lord, and if there's any way that we are still interacting with you in a debtor's ethic like we owe you something, like we have to pay it off or earn something or stay in your good graces. I just pray you would banish that from our thinking and there would be a new degree of depth to our experience of your love, of being able to call out to you, Abba, Father. And that would not lead to spiritual laziness or lackadaisical attitudes that is haphazard with sin, but it would make us more radically serious about holiness not from a duty, but more from a delight. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. Olin's teaching.